quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. In order for people to live a life that they want through real estate, which everyone got into real estate for different reasons, but you have to trust your team. You have to trust the people you hire. Just trust, but verify. Trust that they're going to do the work and then verify that they did a good job. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Slocum Reed, and today I'm here with Kyle Root. Kyle is joining us from Green Bay, Wisconsin. His companies are Empire Estates for Real Estate Investing and KJR Coaching for Real Estate Coaching. He employs the Burr strategy. I'll ask him for the details, but he buys under market value and renovates to a cash out refi to move his capital into his next project. His current portfolio consists of 68 units. 64 of those, he's the sole owner, no partners, no raised capital. And that portfolio is 50-50 between single family homes and small multifamily. Kyle, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, Slocum, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So a little bit about my background, come from a small town in Michigan, grew up, graduated with 250 kids, and was just like a typical jock thought sports was going to take me to the promised land and didn't really care too much about school. I actually got fired from my first job. So just giving some context that no matter where you come from, you can succeed. Graduating from high school, ended up playing college football at a small division two school, went for construction management, was my degree. Graduated after about four and a half years in college. During that time, a lot of development happened for me. My sophomore year in college, I poured concrete for a summer. And if anyone of your listeners, if you have ever poured concrete, you realize pretty quickly that you do not want to do that for the rest of your life. And that was the road I was headed. I wasn't taking my grade serious, just taking anything serious, just playing football and having fun. And that summer was really the turning point where I knew I had to make a switch. So I started reading some books, escalating to real estate towards my senior year. Fast forward, graduation happens. I get a good paying job as a project manager for a construction company. I was about 24 years old at the time. And again, just doing the information phase, reading books, listening to podcasts, calling realtors, just trying to get an understanding of what is this big, great world of real estate investing. And similar to you and a lot of your listeners, I'm sure people get overwhelmed by the amount of information. What kind of strategy do I use? What do I do? So I did that for the information gathering period for about two years. So I was 26, bought my first one in 26. And we can kind of go into more after that. But that's really it. The classic, I don't want to work for someone the rest of my life. And luckily for me, my vehicle at the time was real estate. Nice. A construction management background and some with pouring concrete as well is really helpful. That makes a lot of sense given the strategy that you have focused on thus far. Can you dive into your particular investing strategy a little bit more? Let's go with where you're finding the deals that you're buying, what your business plan looks like, and then are you a long-term never sell kind of guy? Sure. 
So right now, everything between single families and four units. And I'm in the Midwest, like you mentioned, in Green Bay, but I'm buying all over the place. In Green Bay, small little town out here called Wausau, Wisconsin. I'm also buying in Milwaukee. But we're buying fixer-uppers. We're buying $50,000, $60,000 houses. We're sticking twenty grand into them. They're all worth one ten to one forty. Cash flow is about two to three hundred bucks a month. We do cash our refinances up to seventy-five to eighty percent. So really, what we're doing is capital rolling, and we're kind of building this account. So I'll just give a quick example. Let's say we go in buy a fifty-thousand-dollar property. It needs twenty thousand dollars in work. It's worth a hundred thousand. All in, our purchase and renovation are all in at seventy. It's worth a hundred. What we'll do is sometimes we'll take out that 75 or 80%, which is actually additional 10 grand. It'll come back to me. We're still cash flowing solid. And we just keep building this account where some people would lead equity in for us early on, for me to scale. It was all about pulling equity out, still having the ability to cash flow so that I could scale. For me, it was just all about buying as many properties as I possibly can, getting them stabilized. And to your last question there, I'm kind of the boring investor. I stay pretty laser focused. I don't start going off into these. I need to be a big syndicator. I need to be storage units, commercial, large multifamily. I kind of just found my lane. And for now, I'm just sticking there. And it's kind of one of those things when you can double down on what you're really good at. I think there's actually scalability and more profits there than starting to get cute, as I like to call it. Let's talk about that scalability, Kyle. Let me ask, we're recording in the second quarter of 2023. And the reason I mark that is to ask, are you currently buying at your fastest ever pace or was your fastest pace of acquisitions at some time in the past and why? It was probably about a year ago when interest rates were a little bit more favorable. We're still buying, but right now what we're doing is we were able to build up such a large portfolio in a short period of time where you kind of end up, I ended up with some bad eggs. So what we're doing is we're kind of trading. So we've got about 10 properties that aren't performing that well. We're removing the tenant, we're cleaning up the unit and we're selling it. And therefore we're taking in better properties, removing the bad ones that are poor performers. So we're doing a little bit of trading. Really at the end of last year, I ended right around 64 units and we're at 68 right now but we're still buying. So we're just doing some trading and it's going to work out for us. A lot of people get scared of the interest rates. For me, I've got five to 10 year strategy where let's say we lock in a property at 7% interest rate. And not enough people talk about this. If you can cash flow today and you can lock in on a 30 year note in five or 10 years, when these interest rates drop and rents continue to climb, for me, I'm just going to do a rate term refi I'm going to change my rate, increase my cash flow, and we're still going to be paying off the property and cash flowing even better. So yeah, we're still buying, but not at an alarming rate that we were to get to where we are. Kyle, being a host on this podcast since late 2021 has given me an interesting perspective on multifamily investing, especially because I do some multifamily investing, but I haven't done a syndication ownership structure yet. And I'm not a value-add investor underwriting to a defined like five-year hold period with a disposition, with a sale necessitated by my business plan in order to deliver the targeted returns. I'm a long-term buy and hold cash flow guy. I spend a lot of time with a lot of people hearing a lot of arguments about why everyone should scale out of residential investing into larger commercial. And 
some of the arguments make sense, but some of those arguments have also been turned on their head the last couple of years. And you just brought up one of the reasons I think residential investing still has some significant advantages right now. One of them is the 30-year fixed rate mortgage. So let me ask, what is your largest property currently by unit count? Four units. It's funny. In March of 2021, I was doing a cash out refinance on my largest bird a day to 24 unit. And a lot of people thought I was crazy for going with a 15 year fixed rate mortgage at 4% instead of going with a seven year term, 25 year AM at three and a half. They thought I was leaving a lot of money on the table, even though we were planning to hold the property long term. Now, those same people are telling me that I look like a genius. At the same time, though, there's a lot of opportunity in one to four family properties. And there are a lot more amateur operators that are willing to sell at significant discounts that make these cash out refis possible. Have you looked into going into larger properties before in your market? I have. And actually, to your point, especially in my area, you start dipping into those 20, 40, 80 unit apartment buildings. People are savvy. They have a good understanding of what they're looking at, where people would be like, well, there's less investors. Well, of course there is, but they're also way more intelligent. And again, they're more savvy. A lot of them are syndicators, so they can raise the funds. They're not bringing the money to the table. So for me, when I'm looking at single family homes, duplexes, triplexes, where someone might buy a 20 unit in a year, like this January, I bought eight units and they were all single family and duplexes. And not to sound arrogant under any means, but when you're talking to some owners selling a single family home, you can easily convince them why they need to sell this property. When you're talking to a 24 or 48 or 96 unit person that's selling, they're probably pretty intelligent. So you're not really going to be able to sneak a lot by people. So just strictly from a negotiating standpoint, I've personally found one to four units. Again, this goes back to your niche and I just kind of found mine. So I'm just staying there for now. So long story short, honestly, I haven't started dipping into researching larger multifamily. I just haven't. Do you self-manage or do you use third-party property management? Yeah, third-party. It goes back to that time perspective. For me, I can either spend it chasing acquisitions or I can spend time doing the property management side. Definitely, I wouldn't be where I am if I was doing it myself. Let's see if we can address a couple other concerns that commercial investors tend to have with smaller residential properties like the ones in your portfolio. One of the major concerns that a lot of people express that emotionally rather than rationally, and frankly, it's an emotional experience to be sure, but they don't like the financial volatility of smaller properties. If you have a 60 unit property and you have a couple people move out, your occupancy goes from 100% to 96% and everything's fine. When you have a four family and one person moves out, you go from 100 to 75% occupancy. Plus any major repairs and renovations eat away at your revenue a lot larger because each unit is a larger portion of the property and the property's revenues and expenses. Treating this like an argument for scaling, I'm going to scale into larger units, hypothetically, Kyle, because smaller properties are too financially volatile. What do you have to say about that? 
To be honest, I agree with some of those arguments. And for me, from an entry level standpoint, I think single family to four units, A, are the easiest. And again, for me, I'm all value add. So when we go to renovate these properties where other people might have a bunch of repairs, we don't take it lightly. We make sure the fine details are completed so we don't have a bunch of maintenance calls. And I'll get in kind of a strategy what I'm going to do in the next three to five years to help mitigate some of the risks involved with smaller unit counts. But we renovate big time. It's a nice renovation. There's low maintenance, low repairs. And to be honest, where a lot of people talk about single family homes and just like your four units, when one tenant moves out, I look at it across my portfolio. So if I have 70 units and I have two people move out, that's only two vacancies out of 70 units. Yes, you can look at it from an individual standpoint where somebody might own only one single family home and that one person moving out and they have to flip that mortgage could be detrimental for them. But for someone like me that owns several, for a tenant to move out and then us clean it up and put someone back in, that's only one vacancy or two vacancies. And there's ways to mitigate that. So a lot of management companies will wait for the tenant to move out. They'll go in, clean it up, and then they will market it for rent. We don't do that. Right when we get notice that the tenant's moving out, we start marketing it for rent so that we speak on what is going to be done on the property. When the old tenant moves out, we are two to three day flip and turns on that property. And then we already have a lease signed for that person moving in. And then I want to just quickly touch on my strategy. And I think you can make the most money between one and four units in a three, five, seven year hold schedule. I think it comes to a point where you're depreciating that property over a certain period of time, where I might stick $20,000 into a single family home after five to 10 years. I can almost guarantee you I'm going to have to do something similar. So let's just take an example. I bought a property two years ago and the roof is coming up probably in the next three to five years, probably. With that being said, that's a huge expense. And for a single family home to stick a $20,000 roof on there, I won't see that return for years, right? So my plan, I'm going to do this across my portfolio, is when big capital expenditures come up, right before they come up the year or two before... I'm actually going to sell the property. I'm going to kick the tenant out. I'm going to clean up the property. I'm going to sell it. And the money that I make on that sale through a 1031 exchange, I might be trading a single family home for a fourplex. And if I can keep doing that, I'm basically trading older properties for newer ones and more units. So eventually my plan is to then trade that four unit for an eight and then the eight for a 16. And then across 70 units, you do that every single year. You're just scaling up using your own portfolio. That makes a lot of sense. Another question for you, Kyle, from the perspective of a high unit count investor with a value add business plan in particular. And I will say, I want an opportunity to answer this too after you do. But especially with all of the rehab that you're doing, Kyle, lack of scale in your business model, buying single families to four families is going to make it a lot harder, if not impossible, to get better deals or discounts on materials and, frankly, labor because people who are buying four families aren't going to have enough work to attract contractors who can do things more efficiently and more affordably or be able to get volume discount from a contractor who knows that you'll have consistent business for them. And again, Kyle, let's imagine a time when you're portfolio is 20 units or fewer, not where it is now and where it's going. Because then I believe at least that you lose the lack of scale argument. But when you're 
renovating a four unit, your cost per unit, both labor and materials is going to end up being significantly higher because of your lack of scale. What do you have to say about that? You're basically saying I owned a 48 unit that every single unit is the exact same. So you get a discount on that. Easier to get discounts on materials, easier to source materials from wholesalers or from suppliers because of the quantity, the volume that you're buying at one time. Plus, it's a lot easier with a 48-unit property to go direct to subcontractors, be paying hourly instead of paying bids, and do other things that will get you more affordable renovation labor. Yep, I got you. Good question. And actually, what I did to mitigate that is I started my own construction company. So going back in time, like I mentioned, I went through construction management. So I have a good basis in construction. We started our own construction company. So we pull our own permits. Basically, 90% of the work we do all in-house. And with that being said, you're right. We do have to hire plumbers and HVAC and electricians. We don't do roofs, foundation repairs. There are things that we don't do. But if you're only doing one or two or three deals a year, I would agree that you probably are not going to be able to get good rates on materials and labor. But for me, we are doing four to five property turns a month. And I can just go from my set contractors that I use, and they just go from house to house to house to house. My electrician, he has two guys dedicated to me, and they haven't stopped working for me for probably a year. So we have set negotiated rates. And again, I know you were saying, look at somebody with 20 units or less. I would agree. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you looking to raise money from private investors to buy commercial real estate? Syndicationattorneys.com is here to guide you every step of the way. At syndicationattorneys.com, they do more so you can do more. They create real estate syndication and fund offering documents, but they also educate you on the ins and outs of raising private money ensure your offerings comply with securities laws, and help you structure fair deals with investors so everybody wins. With reasonable lump sum fees and over $2.75 billion in securities offerings created, syndicationattorneys.com has the expertise you need. But that's not all. Syndicationattorneys.com also offers weekly attorney-led masterminds, networking, and strategy sessions through their pre-syndication consulting agreements. To learn more, Visit syndicationattorneys.com today to get started. This offer is not available to Florida residents. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital's never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.com thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. I'd like to take a different angle on this question as well, Kyle, to further argue on behalf of your and my 
strategy here. And I hope we get some really good quality value-added investors to disagree with us, hopefully find us on social media and have this conversation further from our listener base. But another piece of this, in my experience and from what I've seen from the people that I interview and the people that I know personally in real estate, in apartment syndication with the value-add business plan the value at business plan is fairly low margin, especially when it comes to margin for error in your renovation budget, because you're looking to deliver a cash on cash return from day one. That means if your renovation costs get really heavy up front, that's a difficult conversation to have with your investors, your limited partners, if it's not a conversation that you had up front, that there would be no cash flow for a while. And really, in order to get that, cash on cash return and that targeted IRR at the end, based on what a lot of these people have been paying for the last few years, you do have to find those opportunities to source cabinets from international suppliers directly and set up apartment kits where every single thing that's going to be installed in an apartment is sitting on a pallet waiting to be delivered to the property so that it can be installed as efficiently as possible. I'm glad those things are available to value-add investors. And for those investors who are good at construction management and putting those systems in place, it's awesome. It saves them a lot of money. It makes them a lot of money. When you're looking at residential burr investing, though, the counterbalance to the lack of scale is the discounts that we're able to negotiate on the purchase up front. In your example, $50,000 purchase price, $20,000 rehab, $100,000 valuation to cash out refi between 75 and 80. Those numbers, well, in Cincinnati, Ohio, they're all bigger now because you're not getting any of those houses for 50 if they only need 20, but they're going to appraise for more than 100 as well. You have a much larger margin for error in your renovation because of the discount that you're buying with. If your $20,000 budget gets blown up to 30, you're still in a cash out refinance and getting all of your money back. And even if it gets blown up to 40, you're only leaving 10 in the deal. You're getting back 80 of the 90 you put in it so that that 80 can be recycled and you're left with $20,000 of equity for your $10,000 that you're not recouping. That's one of the things that I think a lot of people are missing in this strategy, particularly now for those people who are Buying a four family, expecting it to cash flow exactly the way that their spreadsheet shows on day one, and they're buying it in a semi-distressed condition, paying market price on market for it, not taking into account the condition that it's in and the tenants that they're inheriting. There's a strong possibility that you're going to find yourself in trouble. But when you're looking at buying properties, experiencing distress at a distressed price, there's a lot more margin for error in that renovation budget. Has that been your experience as well? Yeah, it has. And to touch on that too, when I talk to a lot of people about scaling and they're like, wouldn't you rather just buy one sixteen unit or one thirty-two unit? A lot of the conversations I have with people and the example I gave buying at 50,000 renovation budgets, 20,000 and the room for error from a percentage standpoint is probably higher. But again, you can only get yourself in so much trouble with five, $10,000 of your own money invested. A lot of these people that I talk to, especially from a syndication standpoint, I was just got done talking to a syndicator and he said that they have 1700 units. And I'm like, well, what percentage do you own? And he told me 3%. I'm like, dude, 
how do you even tell people that you own 1700 units? I understand your equity partner, but again, when we go back to talking about scalability, for me, I haven't really talked to too many people that are 100%, well, 98% owner. I've got that four unit that I have a partner with, but I haven't talked to too many people that are like, I bought 70 units in two years. So I think there's an argument to be had that when you stay in your lane and you build systems in your lane and you can double down and you can become laser focused, I think when people talk about scalability, it more so comes down to how much can you put the blinders on and just keep going down your certain road. If I was always focused on what's next or me starting to do a syndication, I wouldn't be able to buy at the volume that I am because my focus would be elsewhere. So I know that's kind of a circle way to answer your question, but to go back to your original question, yes, I definitely think that the room for error from a percentage standpoint is probably higher than what someone would do from a 40 unit property, if you will. But when you come down to five, ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, yeah, we can talk percentages, but the amount of money, especially for someone from an entry point level, I don't see how five, ten thousand $10,000 just hold the property long enough and you will get that money back. We've done a good job of making this strategy look rosy and clean and simple. Kyle, tell us some of the struggles that you've faced with this strategy with these smaller properties. Just that, that they're small and you only have one door, right? So you look at a four unit, four doors. You have one roof on four doors, a single family. You have one tenant in there and it's still one roof. I have a single family house. It's the same size as a three unit that I have. But that goes back to how I developed a strategy that I don't want to hold each property forever because I want to scale up to newer properties. I've got a bunch of properties that were built in 1930, 1940s, and the roof is coming up in five years. I know the HVAC unit's getting old. So I would say just in general is some of the large capital expenditures for me, I either A, want to stay away from or I'm going to buy them as is, fix the HVAC system, make sure I get my return on it, the roof, and those would be longer term holds. But some of the properties that I have right now that are older and some of the large items, the large repairs and capital expenditures that are coming up, we're just going to sell off and then move into larger deals. So I would just say the expense of large capital expenditures for small rent and unit count for that matter. Kyle, given your construction and construction management background, what advice do you have for our listeners, whatever their portfolio consists of, they're interested in doing their own construction management, probably in part for savings, but also in part for control and preventing delays. What advice do you have for those of us who are doing our own construction management? I would say just having a good cost tracking mechanism, just understanding really what it takes to renovate a property and being able to track it properly. I'm pretty big into KPIs and just data. And I think for a lot of people, I've talked to flippers before. I asked how much they made on their property and how much they put in. And they made roughly 23,000. I'm like, what do you mean roughly 23,000? What about your dumpster fees, your utilities? And they're like, well, we just round it up. So there's a lot of people out there that aren't even tracking the small costs. So I think a lot of it comes down to detail. It comes down to tracking cost well. So that's kind of like the back end of things. But from a management standpoint, I think a lot of people don't trust others. I think a lot of people don't trust the people they hire. So they micromanage them. It leads to poor relationships. And it just shows that you don't trust them. 
I was just talking to one of my clients yesterday and they kept showing up to this property every single day. You don't have to put a kink into things if things are going well. I think a lot of people have this notion that management means showing up to the property and micromanaging and overanalyzing people's work. And it's not that you be lazy and you don't hold people to a high standard and quality, but I think you have to trust people. And in order for people to, I don't want to just keep saying scale, but in order for people to live a life that they want through real estate, which everyone got into real estate for different reasons, but you have to trust your team. You have to trust the people you hire. Just trust, but verify. Trust that they're going to do the work and then verify that they did a good job. That makes a lot of sense. Kyle, you ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. What is the best ever book you recently read? The best book is The Slight Edge by Jeff Olson. I don't know if you've read it, but it's a great book. The Slight Edge is obviously giving yourself an edge on various things through life. Read it like a month ago and been telling everyone to read it. It's a great book. From someone with a long-term hold and trade-up investing strategy, it makes a lot of sense that you would recommend the slight edge, <laughs> yes. And allowing returns to compound over time, allowing debt to be paid down over time. That makes a lot of sense coming from you, Kyle. What is your best ever way to give back? Right now, we're putting together a charity. It's not all together yet, but we're putting together a charity and I say we because my wife and I, and then also I've got a coaching program where I help people one-on-one -on -one coaching, get either their first deal or their next deal. Kyle, on the properties you have acquired, what is the biggest mistake you've made and the best ever lesson that resulted from it? Biggest mistake, boy, it's embarrassing to say, but I have so many. We um, all do. We all do. <laughs> yeah. The biggest one of recent, I'll just say the one of recent is... I poorly ran my ARV numbers. I hired an acquisition specialist and he was doing good and goes back to what I just said, trust but verify. I trusted him, but I didn't verify and I kind of got screwed on a, I didn't get screwed. It was actually totally my fault. I screwed myself, right? But we had the property come in 20,000 or other people like 20,000 under ARV. But when you got properties worth 130,000, 120,000, that ARV matters. So instead of getting money back, we're now bringing money to the table and it's going to cost me in the ballpark of 15 grand just because I didn't take 15, 20 minutes to verify his work. And what is your best ever advice? Just get started. I think a lot of people out there stay in that information phase too long. I think people stay in analysis paralysis. You can talk yourself out of anything. You can run the numbers a thousand different ways to find different results. And more often than not, those results are typically correlated to your fears. And I think a lot of times in real estate, it's scary, right? But a lot of people put money into a 401k with not even knowing where their money's going or what their 401k account's even built of. So I think just gathering information, whether you have to find a mentor or a coach to help you out and just getting started. Your first one, your second one are going to be the hardest one. And it just gets a little bit easier after that. So just getting started. Where can people get in touch with you? Instagram handlers, KJ underscore root. That link is in the show notes. Kyle, thank you. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from today's episode, please do subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend you know we can add value to through our conversation today. Thank you and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, 
Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.